Take your Bible and turn to Esther chapter 1. Brother Chris asked me how long we was actually going to be here covering three chapters today. And I told him just a couple hours, so I hope your crock pot don't burn. No, I'm joking. We, we're just going to do an overview uh, of the book. We began uh, this overview, as it were, of the book of Esther. We do this for the sole purpose of pointing us uh, to celebrate and rejoice in Thanksgiving. My family reads this book every year in the month of November and remembers the great victory that God brought to His people as they were in exile. I preached this several years ago, probably about a decade ago, but have come to somewhat a different understanding of the book and its purpose. And one of the reasons is, is because this is a book of the Restoration Covenant, uh, which we don't really talk about a whole lot. Um, God had exiled His people because they continued to break His covenant and had brought blood guiltiness upon themselves, and so He sent them into exile for 70 years. And here God has begun to do a new thing. He has, as it were, made a new covenant with His people and promised to bring them to life. He made these promises through Jeremiah and Zechariah and Haggai. And so we know Daniel, we're very familiar with that book, was happening uh, somewhat uh, in the same time period, and Ezekiel uh, a little before. And so we were not familiar with this. And then we have Ezra and Nehemiah. And the great thing about these three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they all have this one great thing in common. There's really no miracles done. God doesn't do anything miraculous for His people. His people has to trust, even while God is silent and not acting in a miraculous way for His people. He's actually preparing them for the new covenant time when all prophecy and things like that will be cut off from the people. They just have to know God. They have to know God's Word, and they have to trust Him even in the providential uh, happenings of history. There is much that cannot be known about the book. Esther, uh, uh, earlier, earlier Christian scholars following Jewish tradition tell us that the book was written by Mordecai and that this follows during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And actually, what, what studies I've done, we're not going to go through all that today, but what studies I've done, it seems that Ezra uh, happens, then Esther happens, which leads to Nehemiah happening. So that, that seems to be the sequence of what goes on there. And we do know that the Mordecai in Ezra and Nehemiah were likely the same Mordecai here. Um, it's very unlikely that a bunch of Jews are going to be named worshiper of Marduk, uh, which is what Mordecai means. So it's very unlikely that everybody's going to walk around with that title. That's probably not a real popular Jewish name, just to be honest. It was a name probably given to him by somebody in the court, if not uh, the king himself. Uh, so... That, that kind of leads us to that. And this, 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 to me, points us to Darius, the Mede, as King uh, Ahusserus, meaning that the queen in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 6, would likely be Esther herself. More modern trends point to others and favors Xerxes, uh, but this has difficulty as to the age of the two main characters. Uh, this would put Esther probably at, oh, I don't know, 87 years old, by the time we get to that late date, um, if Nehemiah was actually the... I mean, uh, Mordecai was actually the Mordecai of Ezra. Uh, the, just, just the time and identity of the king being uncertain 
does not take away from the truth and the purpose of the book. It's not important. It's, it's just not important for us to be able to understand what is spiritually being said here for us. The book is called, is a call for the Jews to change how they react and act in exile now that they, have, uh, they are returning home. We see several times that the book points us to the fact that they, these Jews had to live in a world empire under Gentile kings. And we have to understand we went from the patriarchs, what we've been looking at, and then we go into the time of the judges, and then we go into the time of the kings, and then the kings uh, fail. Uh, as God said, if they do my will, they'll never be a king lacking on the throne of David. Well, they didn't. Uh, and Judah finally does the last straw uh, with Manasseh, uh, filling the streets with blood and killing people. And so now we've moved into an exilic period. And instead of having a Davidic king to represent God and call the people to righteousness, now there is a series of imperial kings. That's exactly what Daniel tells us is going to happen. It's going to be the, uh, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then we don't know this, but it, we're pretty sure that it's the Romans because that's who came next. Um, and they will be protector beasts of the people until they turn to devour them, and then God will judge them and so forth. So this is where we're at. We're, we are in the Persian Empire. The Medes and the Persians have defeated the Babylonians. Cyrus the king uh, took over and gave permission to return to the land. Um, so... So these would replace the Davidic kings who failed to keep God's command. Like Daniel, the Jews could be in power. They could serve the emperors, but they had to witness to who they were and why. When we get to Zechariah chapter 2. God says, I have spread you out like the four winds into the land. So it's, you're covering the empire. Your job is to reflect me in the empire. Your job is to witness to who I am in the empire. You're to proclaim the gospel. You're to be a witness, right? It's Zechariah's whole point, right? Not, not that I would ever want to try to tackle that book, my goodness. But, but it's very clear that's what he's saying in chapter 2, that God has made a new covenant. It's the whole symbolic we see with Joshua being, his robes being removed and new robes being placed on him. God saying, I'm renewing covenant with you. You are now my people again. Where you are, witness to me. So we're going to see a lot of that symbolic language here. Um, if we do not witness, you will be trampled underfoot by men. If you defy the king, it brings death. Before we start, we need to set our mind as to this king in this book. Ahusuerus is portrayed basically as a good king. But aside from his posit this positive light, the Lord has said something about these imperial rulers. Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, 1 reads, the Lord, I'm putting that in there because who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. So, what I want us to recognize is that the word in Hebrew that is here translated anointed is the same exact word as Messiah. So, so we, could, we could literally translate it this way. Thus, the Lord says to His anointed, 
or says to his Messiah, to Cyrus, whose right hand he I have held. So he literally calls Cyrus Messiah. So we, we have to understand that this was a way of thinking that the Jews had as a basis. And here's what it is. The priests, they were anointed, so they were little limb messiahs. The king also was anointed, and so he was a little limb messiah. And the prophets were also anointed as little limb messiahs. And they were, their duty was always to speak for the Lord and to point to Messiah. They were to show the character of Messiah. And so what God has now done, right, in, in this Isaiah is to say, well, first of all, he names him 400 years before he gets there or some, something like that. But then he says, you're to treat him like you do the king. You're to treat him like David. You're to see him as David. So to me, it's very unlikely that he says this only of Cyrus, but all, he's saying this of all those who would rule over them. And this fits very well, really neatly, with Romans chapter 13. Which is exactly what we're, we're told, right? All authority is given from God, and there's no authority that's not been given by God. And if you rebel against the king, you rebel against me, because he is my representative, my minister on the earth. So what we, what we have to overcome, it's really hard, but what we have to overcome is, you know, 150 years of dispensational teaching that all these heathen kings were wicked and everything they did was wicked. It's, we've got to get rid of that thinking because what we're going to see is we're going to see a man who multiplies wives and he has one night stands with hundreds and hundreds of girls and we go, that's utterly wicked. And yes, as Christians, we have to say, yes, that's utterly wicked, but it's no different than what Solomon did. And it's no different than what we see David doing. David multiplied wives. Solomon multiplied wives. Thousands of wives. So this is no different. So what I'm not, I'm not saying it's righteous. So don't miss what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we should hold him to no different standard than we do to King Solomon. And if you're going to say that Ahasuerus was sinful, wicked, and lost because he had a bunch of wives, then you have to say the same thing about Solomon. My problem there is I don't think somebody bound for hell writes Scripture. I don't care what anybody says. That makes no sense that God would do such a thing. Did he sin? Yes. Did he need repentance? Yes. Did he get it? I think so. Ecclesiastes seems to point to that, right? And so I'm doing all this so that we will kind of get our mindset as we get to the text, right? So with this in mind, we look at the first three chapters this morning. We will not read them all at one time uh, because you'll quit listening to me and I'll lose my place. Until we get to those sections, we will be reading them. This is an overview of the book and not meant to be an exposition verse by verse. And I say that because there are certain people here who have studied Esther on their own and they're going to tell me I missed something. I know, it's an overview, right? So just prepare yourself. Not going to do numerology today. We're, we're just going to cover the basic themes of, of the chapters. All right, so if you will, stand to honor the reading of God's Word. This will be the only time we do this this morning, but we're going to look at Esther chapter 1. Verses 1 through 9. The word of the Lord reads, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahusuerus, this was the Ahusuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahusuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants. The powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces, 
being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver of a mosaic pavement on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Glorious and almighty God, we thank you that you have chosen, Father, signs and symbols and others to represent your glory unto us so that we could just get the smallest glimpse of how honorable, glorious, and beautiful you are. Father, you adorn your palace as you please. And we pray, dear God, that you will make us all submissive unto your word, that we would bow the knee to your commands, and that God in all things, we will give your glory to Jesus Christ, who you've given it to, and that, Father, he would make us glorious. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Meeting with the king. When Ahusserah sat on his throne, this likely has to do with finally having all challengers and rivals put down Ahusuerus was securely placed on the throne. And we can think about David and his struggle, not just running from Saul, but even after Saul and Jonathan's death, uh, he had to face... Uh, uh, his name just left me. I want to say Bovishev, and I know that's not right. But a son of David, uh, and they fought a war for several years to get complete control of Judah. This is how things happened in the ancient world. There were always people who said, oh, I want to be king. I deserve to be king, or I have a right to the throne, and there would be battles fought over that. We see it several times in Roman history. And so this is very, uh, very likely he finally settled his kingdom. After three years, he was ready to sit down. Uh, it's a situation where the king would entertain one group uh, of one day and, and then another the next. Probably not a continuous, everybody comes and everybody's there the whole time. Uh, this was both a celebration that they were no, uh, there were no more enemies to put down and a show of majesty and power. He wanted to show that he was able to rule the kingdom, that he had the power, that he had the wisdom, and that he had the wealth to lead the nation rightly. Um, look how well the king has provisioned himself. Look how glorious he is. Look how generous he is able to be. He has a beautiful palace and garden, and he has wonderful servants. And he's not like most kings. He didn't say, everybody drink, and everybody had to drink. So you hear that a lot in movies. And it's, oh, yeah, well and good. Let's drink. Let's... When a king said, let's drink, by God, you better put your cup to your lips because it meant death if you didn't. He said, drink, you drink. But here, Ahusra says, no, 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 no. Everybody does as they wish. You give them what they want, and they only have to drink what they want. Right? If you want to be a teetotaler, here's you some water. 
You want to get drunk? Go right ahead. But it was your choice. It was not the king compulsorily doing this. This was a year of decision, the third year that he ascended to his throne. All these numbers have meaning, and we'll cover some of them. We won't flesh them out fully uh, because you should be familiar with them by now after going through Genesis. We should notice next the place where they had uh, the seven-day party. Is a, it's a sabbatical place, and it is uh, in a garden. That should kind of cue us in that we're, we're looking at an Eden-type situation here, right? And then we began to look at what is described in, the, in this garden. There's pillars of marble, all right? So we have pillars of marble in, in the temple. We have these curtains of blue. That's, that's the same thing we have in the temple. And there's beautiful mosaics. Well, you know, with the tabernacle and the temple, there's not these beautiful mosaics, but it does point to the way that it was decorated because in the temple you had pomegranates and grapes and you had all these things carved in, vines and all these things pointing to, to lush, flourishing uh, vegetation. The description put, should put us in mind of the temple. Then we couple this with 127 provinces pointing us to the years of Sarah's life, the bride of Abraham, the first or at least the first covenantal bride of Christ uh, symbolically, right? She pointed to the church. And so here we should be put into the mind of the church. And then, as we've mentioned, the Spirit flowed as any man chose. So I want you to think about this. We have a lot in our minds. We think a lot of times that there's certain people that are given more of a measure of the Spirit because that's just what God has chosen to do. And, and yes, you know, covenant, you know, Calvinistically, that is true when we get down to you know, monogism. But what we need to understand is most of the time men are led by the Spirit as they seek the Spirit. What do you mean? Well, if you're not led of the Spirit as I'm led of the Spirit, you may not be doing the disciplines I'm doing. You may not be running after God like you should. Maybe you let something else get in the way. You know, why am I not as faithful as somebody else? Why do I not have the Spirit? Why doesn't God use me the way they do John Piper? Well, you know, you just might not be doing your due diligence. You, you, you might be the teetotaler. But we do need to understand that here, symbolically, by this time in redemptive history, what we see in the Bible is the, the Spirit is compared to wine, and we see that really clearly when we get to the New Testament, when you're not to be drunk with wine, but right, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Not, don't be controlled by wine. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that is the connection. Why? Because wine and strong drink, which is beer, is fiery drinks. It's fiery liquids that need wisdom to be used properly. And so here we have this picture of the king, Jesus, saying, have as much as you want of my spirit. Have as much as you want of my spirit. Drink it in. Enjoy it. But it's up to you how much you drink, how much you take in. So, Queen Vashti also had a banquet or feast for the women. So what does this point to? Well, it seems that God's little in Messiah had come to his throne. And it points to Jesus Christ when he came to his throne. Right? And it also points to the church 
and God. So the Old Testament church and God and His commands. And we're going to see how that works out. He wanted all His people to come and enjoy the fruit of His victory. Likewise, we will see that now that Christ is enthroned, He calls on all men everywhere to repent. Jesus, the emperor of the world, offers His Spirit to all under Him. And he uses that language. And we should not, because we're Calvinists, to know that only certain people will receive that back off that language. Right? What you see here, it says all the world. Yeah, it does say all the world. I like it. I like it. Right? All men everywhere to repent. Because all men. Why? Because there's a day that God has said is judgment. Judgment day. That is coming. So the call and the rebuttal. Verses 10 through 12, the word of the Lord reads, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded me human, Bestha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagath, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who serve in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. On the seventh day, the last day of the feast, the king calls for his queen to come and bring her crown. Now, we are not told that the king was drunk. We, some commentators take that. And I understand, uh, especially the teetotaler type commentators, going in that direction. His heart was merry wine. He had to be doing something wrong because drinking's a sin. All right, but we are not of that ilk, so we shouldn't take it that way. Merry is what you become at Christmas, right? Your heart becomes merry as you're with your friends and your family and you eat good food and you exchange gifts and you love on each other and you remember that Christ came in the flesh to save your soul and you're made merry. You're made merry. by What it means is you're emboldened to be happy and joyous openly. So now what this means is you're not restrained by inhibitions, right? That What are people going to think if I dance? I grew up Baptist and it was a sin... Should I dance? I'm Presbyterian now, I can dance. Right? I'm made merry toward dancing. Right? It's that kind of understanding that we need to get. When we say Merry Christmas, we're saying be emboldened to be joyous without inhibition. Be brave in the Lord. Right? So he was made emboldened to be joyous, to be overwhelmed by his joy. And when that happened, he's like, y'all got to see my queen. Man, she is gorgeous. She is beautiful. Now, we're also not told, as some commentators try to tell us, that she was to come out naked with nothing but her crown on. Okay, so I want you to think about this. What man of power who wants to stay in power would show his wife off in such a way? No man's going to do that. No, no godly, no, no, no heathen man is going to display his wife in such a way. It's just, we have to read that back into the text. What we have to be careful of is we're not told that he's drunk. We're not told that he sinned in any way. He was, he was not naked like Noah. He was not sleeping with his two daughters like Lot. 
nor having his adolescent daughter dance before him like Herod. None of these things are happening. We're not told any of that, right? We are told his heart was merry, which I've said means he's boldly happy, rejoicing, and brave. We cannot from the text find any sin in the king's request. What we have to do is take this on face value without imputing our thoughts on his motives. Because this is what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to slide into wokeness. The king is a tyrant because he ordered his wife to do something. But God says that women are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. So who's in sin? Who's in sin? It's not the king. He's not given her an unreasonable request, and he's not asked her to sin. Please come and present yourself with me at my banquet. No. That's her response. No. And not no just once. Because if we read the text properly, we understand that these seven eunuchs went separately, and the queen said no at each request. Right? So... She, she refused to come to the king. She would not come. By the way, uh, this scene is uh, where Shakespeare got his last scene for Taming the Shrew. Where the shrew has now been tamed and she drags the other two women who wouldn't come to their husbands and says, women should honor their husbands. And that being true, then there's no sin here right, on the part of the king. So this angers the king, of course. Uh, and let me say why. This, this would not only have been a slight at the new king's authority, but it would have been embarrassing to the king. How's he going to rule the country? He can't even rule his home. Right? Well, that's, that's the same requirement for a pastor. Right? It, I mean, it's the exact same thing. Does he rule his home well? That's why I think a man should be married and be raising children before he can become an elder. Because we don't know if he can rule a house. There's no evidence yet. Right? So this could not stand. This, it seems to me, is pointing to the very reason that the Jews were in exile in the first place. God continuously called the children of Israel to meet with him in his temple and him alone. And they would not do it. There would be a call in all the synagogues in the first century for the Jews to meet with their new king, Jesus Christ, in the first century. I believe this connection is why we have Gog and Magog men mentioned in Revelation. This very situation was exactly the situation that the Jewish people faced in the first century with Jesus Christ. And there was another battle coming. There's another battle coming. The slight of the king here will be the slight of King Jesus then. God reacts the same way, but there's no Esther to intercede as they rejected their only intercessor in Jesus Christ. The bride is to be replaced, verses 13 through 22. By the way, I'm going to slaughter these names. Go ahead and be prepared. Um, just, just the way it is. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marcina, and Mimucan, 
the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti? According to law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mimucan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the, king, for the queen's behavior will become, to know, will become known to all women so that they will desire their, despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. This very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she... Then the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all the empire, his empire, for it is great. All wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king, and the princes, and the king did according to the words of Mimucan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be masters in his own house, and speak in the language of his own people. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Now, I want to get you into the mind of your preacher. There are times when I've read the text 60 times in a week. And then I stand up here and I read the text and go, Ah, I missed that! How did I miss that? So uh, Esther's going to be David. Because she's a neighbor better than him. Just like David was a neighbor better than Saul. Sorry. That's not in here. But just know that just come into my head. So the king seeks counsel. This main advisor tells him that she needs to be deposed. Now, what we need to understand is a lot of the commentators, especially the, the Jews, connect Mimucan with uh, ha uh, Haman. Haman, uh, they say, is, is one name that he had, but uh, as we, we see, you know, Esther has two names. Uh, Mordecai probably has two names. Um, and so... They connect. This, this is the, king, the king's counselor, and he's one of the head counselors, and he becomes the head of the head counselors later on. We can't prove that, uh, but that's just what they say. But it is a lex talionis, or an eye for an eye uh, punishment. If she won't come, then she can't come. And we're going to see that's exactly what happens to the Jews. They're completely cut off from the olive tree because they refuse to come and worship their king. They refuse to come. And the reason is also fairly good. Mimucan says that her rebellion will lead to wives all over rebelling. And we go, you know, that's just silly. But if you will look at our society, you'll see that's not silly. Because the English follow, especially English women, follow exactly along with what royalty's going on. What they're doing. And we've seen it's been that way throughout history. The rich and powerful do certain things, and then the poor and lowly try to imitate it. That's exactly what happens. We, we, can, we could literally see a moral turn in our country while Bill Clinton was in office because he was morally bankrupt, and people followed his lead. Right? And, and, and 
So this, this is very, very likely. This fits what we know of society. Society as they knew it would be in upheaval. Thus, the king's response had to be strong and it had to be decisive. And it had to be a law that could not be changed. Why? Because men are fickle. I'm mad at her now, but I'm not going to be mad at her later. Lord, she's beautiful. I want her back. Right? right? Me and her just conquered a nation and settled our power. I miss her. I, I, we went through that together. No, you can't revoke it. So it had to be that. So he had to protect his new throne. We have to see the connection here between the, the Christ and the apostate Jews. I've already pointed this out, but Christ's wife refused to meet with him. Thus, he had to cast her away. Mark that this is not replacement theology as the church did not replace Israel. Now, this is what it's going to sound like as we go through this book. Esther replaced Vashti. Uh, but but and rather, the church was merged into Israel, clean with the blood of Jesus Christ, and then given a new name. Right? But there's no physical way that God could foreshadow that for us because Ahusserus could not merge Esther into Vashti. It's not physically possible. They're two separate women. This is a shadow. It's not perfect. But it is showing us the replacement of the first wife who had fallen by the second wife who was cleansed, who was righteous. God divorced Israel. Christ restored her in the church. You see that connection? And so that's what's going on here. The king remembers his bride. Now, this is going to be important when we get to next week as well. There's things that happen here, again, pointing to Ahusserah's being an image of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when God remembers, God's people are saved. When God remembers, God's people are saved. And so here he remembers Vashti, and what does that produce? It produces Esther being uh, uh, advanced. So he, he remembers he remembers her. Um, he remembers his bride. Chapter 2. The word of the Lord reads, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, see, I told you, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Hegiah, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Excuse me. Let them then let the young women who pleases the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, from whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was loved and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree was heard, were, decree were heard, and when young women were gathered to Sushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. 
Now the young woman, ple- young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had cha- charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters, women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what has, was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations of the women, for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparation for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Sheshachgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was set within the gate, king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Thus far the reading of God's word. Ahusuerus cools off, and he remembers Vashti. This would have been likely a time when he would have thought about reconciliation. He'd have thought about all the time that they had spent together and how much joy he found in her and this one little flaw. Why not bring her back? But he couldn't. The law prohibited him from changing the law that he himself had written down. If it's written in the books and the laws of the Medes and Persians, it cannot be changed. This is not the first time we've seen this. It is, it's several times it is said in the scriptures, especially in Daniel, we see those things. It's why Daniel had to go to the lion's den, even though the king did not want to do that. Uh, it's because he could, it could not be repealed. The law could not be repealed. And this of course, should remind us of Christ and His law. Christ 
has a law given first in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy, which literally means second law. This law is based on Christ's character, and thus it is unchangeable. It is unmutable or immutable. Right? And, and we have to understand that. When we break God's immutable law, we stand guilty. And we deserve death. So keep that in mind as we go forward. This law cannot be changed. Right? It cannot be changed. He once again goes to advisors and they suggest a beauty pageant. This is basically what this is. They would search the kingdom for beautiful virgins from all the different provinces for the king to choose one of which he would marry. The, what he liked best would take Vashti's place. It does not seem realistic that this would have been any old virgin, virgin who, who they found. Right? So, like, some commoner is going to become queen of the empire. That's just very unlikely. She probably had to have some kind of of royal background. By the way, Hadassah does. She's a Benjamite. That is a royal family in Israel. Even though they were deposed, they're still royalty, right? They, they still would be considered uh, within that. Um, so uh, I, I don't think that... Well, first of all, I don't, you see scenes in movies by Esther. These hooligans are going through the streets, breaking into people's houses, stealing their daughters, and taking them to the king's palace. I don't think it's anything like that. I think it's like, uh, which of you ladies are virgins and would like to be queen? Right? Ooh, me, I'd like that. And you got to think about it. We're court intrigue. It's, it's, we're dealing with royalty. So there's all kind of intrigue. And there's places and positions of power that you would want to get your family in so that you could benefit. And I want to tell you, that's what Mordecai's doing. Ooh, Esther, wouldn't it be great if you were queen? How much we could do for the kingdom of God. So don't tell anybody you're a Christian. And that's exactly what's going on here. Hide who you are. Don't proclaim God and go sleep with the king. And maybe you'll become a concubine. But maybe you'll be queen. You are awful beautiful. Right? Very possible. So I think that's what's going on here. Uh, there's a lot made about the preparation these ladies went through. Um, garlic was a big, uh, big thing in, in the Middle East at this time. They, they grew it. They ate it. And uh, if you eat a lot of garlic, everybody knows it because it comes out in your skin. But if you eat herbs and spices in the right amounts, then that becomes what comes out of your skin. And so they would take these girls and they'd take them off of these diets that made their bodies stink and put them on diets that made their bodies smell good naturally. And then they gave them oil to make them soft and pretty and supple. By the way, these women probably were not sticks. They probably were thick girls, more than likely, because that was what was in fashion, right? So they wanted them to be sleek and soft and supple, right? And so that's what they're doing for, for a year, a whole year, they're making these girls beautiful, more beautiful, more presentable, right? This should remind us of how God treats us. He rubs us down with the oil of His Spirit, and He feeds us good food that we would be fragrant and smell like Him, that we would be more like Him. So that's what's going on here. Um, 
The main thing that I want us to get out of this and I want to emphasize is the contrast here between Esther and Daniel. Daniel refused to defile himself and because he found favor with the men over his care, he was allowed to practice his dietary restrictions according to the, uh, the book of the law. Turn to Daniel chapter 1. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 8. The word of the Lord reads, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should we see your face looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let, us, let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, deal with your servants. So he consented with them in the matter and tested them 10 days. <clears throat> now, contrary to popular belief, Daniel did not have uh, his weight and figure in mind when he set this out. It's fine. If you lose weight, drinking water and eat nothing but vegetables, you don't have any energy, that's up to you. But, but that's not Daniel's, that's not Daniel's uh, goal here. Daniel wants to make sure that he is not given meats that are cooked in pork fat. So, and, and y'all can look at me strange all you want to, but my grandmother cooked everything in bacon grease. Everything. Right? Unless it was a, you know, a dessert. And that may have had bacon grease in it. I don't know. But she cooked everything with bacon grease. And so it's very likely that they did the same thing. They took the fat from one meat and cooked the other meat in it, especially like a beef which is not as greasy and needs more moisture. So... If the church is going to be faithful in the restoration covenant, they are going to have to witness to the king. Now, here, here is something that is just, it, we just have to think through this. We are in uh, what people would call a remnant age. We are in like the restoration period. We are in and amongst heathens. They're everywhere. They rule over us, and we have their laws leading us. The problem that we have is the church wants to look like them and speak like them, and act like them, right? That's why, that's why your pastors now uh, moose up their hair real good. I, I guess they don't use moose anymore, do they, Mom? I'm showing my age. But, but, but they, they stiff their hair up, spiked out everywhere like they're 18 years old, even though they're 45 and a beer gut, and they walk around with a shirt half unbuttoned, or they'll sit on a stool and teach you like you're just hanging out at a coffee shop, rather than giving you the Word of God, because they want to look like the world. And then they cut all the lights off, they throw the, sound and the smoke machine out, and they start playing music. That sounds like you're in a club. That is not music. Not what you should have in the Lord's house. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Christian contemporary music. I like it. I listen to it all the time. 
But that is not good music. Good, you cannot tell me that even compares to Mozart. It doesn't even compare to Beethoven. It doesn't even compare to Fanny Crosby. Just, let's just be honest. It's not as good a music. And when we talk about what we should look like, you say, well, we look different. It makes people uncomfortable. Good. That's what it's supposed to do. We're peculiar. You don't get much stranger than me. And we have to be that. We have to hold on to that. There's reasons we do what we do on the Lord's Day. And we have to hold on to those things. Because when we don't do them, then we're not worshiping. Well, worship's not worship. I don't care what anybody says. And we displease God. And then He doesn't bless us. We're not being a witness to the world. God can be found here. This is how you know. So, that's my little high horse today. If the church is going to be faithful in the Restoration Covenant, they, are, they were going to have to witness to the king. And we see in Paul that he learned this lesson well. Not only is he not afraid to be a witness, he forces it. No, you better send me to Caesar. I have a right as a Roman citizen. I can stand before Caesar. I want Caesar to hear my case. Why? Because he was going to get one chance to give the gospel to Caesar. And he wanted to. He longed for it. He desired it. Right? He didn't run from it. Esther is wise, though, in that she did not take anything that was not suggested. She probably saw all the other girls painting themselves up according to the custom of the land they were from. And she knew that she was not trying to win a Jewish, but a Persian king. What does the Persian king like? Doesn't matter what David would have liked. Doesn't matter what those others would have liked. What, what, what does the king want? And she wins the king. She wins him over. He loves her. Now, this is significant that this is not just a show marriage. The king loved her. And this points to the election of the Jews and to the church because God chose to bestow his love on the church apart from others. Right? I give that illustration. I love all you women in here, but I don't love any of you anything near what I love my wife like. Right? I bestowed my love on her. I've chosen her, and praise God she chose me back. Right? And there is that here. God chose to save the Jews. God chose to bestow His love on the Jewish church. And then later, us. And we, we a lot of times get this all messed up. It's like God loves us in this cold, arbitrary, uh, legalistic way. Right? It's just a word. God doesn't really have emotions. If he doesn't, then neither do you because you're made in his image. So let's just bring this all the way down to the ground. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. This is a great chapter about love. But we're going to read verses 12 through 19. The word of the Lord reads, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Holy Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has seen the Son as Savior, sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. 
God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who loves has not been made perfect in love, has, has not been made perfect in love. He loved him because we love him because he first loved us. If you have real love, then God really loves you. Now, I, I want you to get what I'm saying to you. God has bestowed love on you in a real way. He has taken action towards you to save you from your sins. God doesn't just say, oh, I find you pleasant, or oh, I like you, or oh, I emote over you. He says, I love you. I sent my son to die for your sin. And then he says this, what will he withhold from you having already given you his beloved son? He sent his beloved son, the thing that he loves the most, he gave up for you. He gave up for you. And so here, this is a true love, this is a real love, and we're going to see this play out in the book. Lastly, Mordecai saves the king's life. He discovered a plot to kill the king and shares that with Esther. And the thing that we need to see from this is the great hope we can have in times of trouble and fear. Here is God laying the means of escape before the danger even arises. We ain't even heard the name Haman yet, and God is making a way to deliver Mordecai from being hung on a gallow. Right here it is. God is showing His people, you may not even know you're going to have danger, but it's coming, and I'm preparing you a shelter already. The whole point of the book of Jonah. The whole point of the book of Jonah. Right? I'm going to send you into the sea, the Gentile people, and then because of your disobedience, I'm going to cast you into that sea, into danger, and you're almost going to drown, and it's going to make you cry out to me, and I'm going to send a fish to deliver you. This great sea monster swallowed him up so he wouldn't drown, and if he did drown, God raised him from the dead. That's an argument we can have later. And then he spits him up to do what? Go back into the sea, the Gentile nations, and be preserved so that Israel also one day would be preserved in Assyria rather than utterly destroyed, like they would have been had Nineveh not repented. Had Nineveh not repented, they'd have probably all been hamstrung and crucified or hung on gallows, which is nothing more than a pike. So God is preparing a way of escape for His people always, even before they know that danger exists. The accuser Haman comes to power and Mordecai falls. Chapter 3. The word of the Lord reads, After these things King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened, when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman, to see whether Mordecai's word would stand. 
For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay his hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King uh, King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by courier into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Something, sometime after these things, in the twelfth year, Haman is promoted over all the princes of the empire. We are not told why Husserus does this foolish thing, as Haman seems to be a usurper, but he does. This is where we are. Right? And though Husserus was a type of Christ, he is not Christ. With this promotion comes the command for the other princes to bow and pay homage to Haman. Now Matthew Henry tells us that it was unlawful for Jews to bow to wicked men, but fails to provide a scripture to prove that. Now I love Matthew Henry, not hating on him. I just think we shouldn't say such things if we don't back it up with scripture. It's sin. He couldn't have done this. It would have been sin for him to bow. Well, then you should be able to show me in the scriptures where it says such a thing, right? I also would like to point out Daniel and his three friends, who I am positive bowed the knee to Nebuchadnezzar a time or two. It's almost guaranteed, right? Now we need to uh, notice here another theme of Esther, and this is cosmic warfare. There's two things I want to point out. Meanings of names, again, they mean something. Hadassah which is Esther's Hebrew name, means myrtle. And you go, what is so big deal? What does that mean? Well, uh, the 
prophet Zechariah calls Israel a, mur a myrtle tree. So she is a myrtle tree in the restoration period. So Esther points us to Israel, right? Mordecai is, as I said, worshiper of Marduk. And we have here an Agagite. Now, we should know, because we've gone through First and Second Samuel, that Agag was the king of the Amorites, and he was supposed to be killed, but Saul refused to kill him in 1 Samuel 15. And it's the very reason that uh, he lost the kingdom. We've got to remember, Agag is a title. He's very much like Pharaoh or Abimelech and uh, Ahusserus. And they have meanings, uh, and, but this does not mean that he is actually the son or grandson or great-grandson of that Agag, but he was of the royal house. Now we see from chapter 2 the genealogy of Mordecai, verses 5 and 6. So we have a, have a descendant of two famous Benjamites. First, like, likely the uncle of Saul, Shimei, the cursor of David, from 2 Samuel 16, 5 through 14. Great thing about Shimei, Shimei uh, cursed David and was eventually killed for disobedience by Solomon, but his sons would, uh, are listed in those who would be the righteous and so we see that family comes back in. Uh, and then we see Kish, the father of Saul. Now, the new King James tried to clear up a controversy here. Uh, when they do that in chapter 2, they, they say that Kish is the one that was carried off into exile. That may very well be true. Kish may be a popular family name in Benjamin. Uh, we don't know, uh, but I don't think they should do that. The word there is he. It is a pronoun that nobody knows to which it recur, uh, refers. Is it talking about Mordecai? Was he the one that went into exile with the king? Or was it Kish or Shimei? Or who was it? So we don't know. More than likely, we have Kish and then Shimei and then uh, Mordecai. I like Mordecai being the one uh, just simply because we, the Kish we know, the Shimei we know are older, way older, like hundreds of years older uh, and would not have been able to go into exile. But that's just my take. It doesn't, it doesn't change the interpretation of the book. So now we see the issue. Saul lost the kingdom for sparing Agag, and God had declared perpetual war against the Amalekites. Deuteronomy 25, 17-19, the word of the Lord reads, Remember that Amalek, what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked you, your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tried tired and weary, and did not fear God. Therefore, it, should, it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. Now, I can't go into it. I don't have time, but there seems to always be an attack of the Amorites when the kingdom is being changed in hands. So, remember David. His whole family is carried off by who? The Amalekites. Right? So, there is this theme that runs through the Old Testament uh, that, that there's great deliverance, Saul's dead, and then the Amalekites show up. And then they have to be dealt with. So here we have the same thing. Mordecai has to deal with the Amalekites. How is he going to do it? Is he going to do it like Benjamin did? Is he going to compromise? I'm not Benjamin. Uh, uh, 
Saul? Is he going to do it like Saul? Or is he going to do it the way God commanded? Is he going to handle it like a David? So Mordecai refuses to bow and is questioned about it. Now this is the time that discernment would have helped Mordecai as these men were seeking his fall and their rise. They wanted to make him look bad in front of the, the head guy, in front of the prime minister, and they wanted to, to advance themselves. They wanted to endear themselves to the guy that was, had the ear of the king. We often get, let our passions uh, blind us to certain things. So this is no different than Daniel and the restriction on prayer. And what I mean by that, those men did not care if Daniel prayed. They didn't care who Daniel worshipped. They wanted to use Daniel's faith to destroy him. They wanted to use it against him. They wanted to use it to lever him out of the position of being the high counselor. They wanted him killed. Right? If Mordecai believed it was unlawful to bow to Haman, say because he was an Amalekite, then he should have said so. But these men report to Haman that the reason is that he was a Jew. The problem is that just like Daniel, all people face the same law and restrictions except the dietary law. If it is unlawful for a Jew to bow and pay homage to wicked men, then it is also sinful for all men to bow to wicked men. What we call the moral law is not given with exceptions, nor is it applied to peoples differently because of their heritage. God says, this is my character, and we are to set this as righteousness for us and model it. Haman watches and sees that it is true. Mordecai does not bow. He is enraged and plots to kill all Jews as a consequence. I believe that it is likely uh, that Haman knew the command of God and wanted to stick a finger in Yahweh's eye. You should be able to get that reference. We are the apple of His eye. If somebody touches you, they've touched the apple of my eye. This is only half true, right? Uh, What he says is only half true. By the way, we're later going to prove that all he did was arouse God to his people's defense. Um, He goes to King Ahasuerus and tells a half-truth to accuse God's people of being deserving of death. He says that they have their own law and do not keep the king's law. This is only half true as they had the Mosaic law, but they were commanded through Jeremiah to obey the rulers uh, wherever he placed them and to seek the prosperity of the land. Right? He, Jeremiah told the king, Jehoiakim, over and over again, if you will go out and bow to need and Nebuchadnezzar, you will be spared. Jerusalem will be spared. And they wouldn't do it. Submit to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. He has been placed over you by God. And they wouldn't do it. So, um, it's, it's only half true. And he uses their religion against them. The king says that all is in Haman's hands to do with as good as seems good to him. So the king gives free reign to Haman to handle all situations and to all the treasury to pay for it. This should remind us of the words of God to Satan concerning Job. Everything he has is yours. His body is yours. Do with him as you will. Haman is here the accuser representing satanic attack against God's people, in particular the bride. In particular the bride. The Jews are placed under a sentence of death just as we all deserve. Haman had put the Purim to, uh, used the Purim to determine the best day for this to occur, and then letters uh, are sent to all the 127 promise, provinces. Remember that God controls even the outcome of the lot or pur. We know that uh, this was grace from the Lord. 
allowing His people time to repent. This gives us the same pattern for the Vashti situation. Right? There was a command of the king, and it was disobeyed. We have the great anger and wrath that this causes. The counselors tell the king that the kingdom is in jeopardy. Counselors gives advice that please the king, and then letters go out to announce... Uh, and horses are sent to all the people hastened by the king's command. Every, it's exactly the same, exactly the same language. It's, it's, and it's, it's done in a chiastic, and at the center is they hid who they were. They hid who they were. The main point of these first three chapters is you can't hide who you are. If you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. If you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my father, Jesus said. Cannot be ashamed. You cannot. You cannot lie about who you are. What I want us to see is two important points from these verses. First, if we disobey those God has placed over us, there falls on us a sentence of death. This is clear from Romans 13. Because when we do this, it is rebellion, and rebellion is always against God. Yeah, The fifth commandment points us in that direction because to obey your father is to obey God. It is also clear from these chapters that the civic ruler is to be a minister of God. Second, we all have been accused and rightfully stand under the sentence of death. We deserve to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Satan is correct in that we have broken the law of the high king and should be punished. Right? We should be punished. Now, this is a book of feasts. Over and over again, there's feasts throughout this book. And here is one feast where the accuser shares a feast with the king and the Jews are excluded. Why? Because they stand guilty of disobeying the king's commands. We likewise are guilty and should not be allowed to the table. Praise be to God, this is not the end of the story. Our Redeemer has interceded for us and died our death. God condemned us by His law and then found a way to uphold the, that law and have mercy on His people. Justice and mercy have kissed, and we are counted righteous. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You, God.